The American Battlefield Trust preserves America's hallowed battlegrounds and educates the public about what happened there and why it matters. If you would like to help save these important pieces of history, please log on to battlefields.org. Shepherd University's George Tyler Moore Center for the Study of the Civil War and Department of History invite undergraduate students from across the country to come and spend a semester at their historic crossroads in Shepherdstown, West Virginia. Their semester-long Civil War experience will immerse a select group of undergraduate students in collaborative learning, interpretive field experiences, digital humanities projects, public history programs, and a war and society approach to military history. For more information on this program, please log on to shepherd.edu slash Civil War Semester. What's up, everybody? Hey, it's John, the Tattooed Historian. Thank you for tuning in to this episode of the Tattooed Historian Show. You know, we've been going pretty hard here for a little while. I've been doing a lot of interviews. I've been talking with a lot of people. And it has been just a tremendous thing to be working with so many great historians or people who are just involved in history in one way or another. So I want to thank all of you, first of all, for tuning in and listening to this episode, to previous episodes. Hey, it means the world to me. And if you would subscribe it, subscribe to it, if you would share it, that would be fantastic. Uh, this week, I have a, a good friend on. And I know I say that every week, that I have good friends on. But they are good friends. When you're a friend in history, you're a good friend. And uh, my friend this week, coming to speak with us about a very cool topic to me, is Travis Shaw. And Travis and I have been friends for a couple years now. He was actually a supporter of mine when I started the first podcast, which was an absolute flop. Uh, I didn't like it. it. It stunk. It was just me talking for a half hour to 45 minutes about some random subject, uh, sometimes about historical interpretation. And Travis still tuned in to all two or three episodes that I did. And, uh, you know, when you got someone who'll support you like that, even when you think, uh, you know, this isn't going to work, that's a that's a good friend, and uh, he was always there to give me some feedback and to just be a part of the process. So I figured, why not? Let's bring Travis on. Travis knows a lot of great historical tidbits, and Travis works for the Mosby Heritage Area Association. Uh, he is the public uh, programs coordinator there, and uh, he has just been doing a great job down there. He was at the Oatlands for a few years, and then he moved on to the Mosby Heritage Area Association. If you never heard about that, that's a, a large open-air museum in Northern Virginia. Uh, you can drive for miles and miles and miles and see so many different things. Uh, 18th century history, 19th century history, 20th century history. It's a beautiful part of the world uh, here in the Mid-Atlantic, and I really appreciate the wonderful history that they try to preserve down there, and they've been doing a great job with it. It's just been uh, fantastic to talk to Travis about these kind of things that are happening. And uh, we sat down in his home, and uh, I said, Travis, what do you want to talk about? Because, I, like I say, I don't like to script this thing. I like it to be natural. And I know Travis can talk about so much, and I can go along for the ride, basically. 
So uh, Travis and I decided that we would talk about the 1st Maryland Potomac Home Brigade, which was a Civil War unit that one of my ancestors was a part of. And they had ties with Mosby. Now, not on the same side of the conflict. They actually fought against Mosby. Uh, John Singleton Mosby was a a Confederate uh, irregular cavalry commander, uh, well-known in that part of the world, in Northern Virginia and in Maryland. Uh, He made, uh, I think he made a raid into Pennsylvania as well at one point. But one of my ancestors was with this federal unit, the 1st Maryland Potomac Home Brigade, and their job was to check the advance of these irregulars. So I thought, well, this is a great idea. You know, let's sit down and talk about who Mosby was up against. And it just happened to be uh, the unit that one of my ancestors was, w- was with during the Civil War. So we sat down for a little over a half hour, and we talked about the chronology of this unit from beginning to end, basically. Now, my ancestor was with them from the beginning until 1864, which is, you know, close to the end. Uh, before he was captured, not far from where Travis and I did this interview, which was a pretty cool thing. It was after dark, or I would have slid over there and gotten some content, but I didn't have time that night. I intend to go back down. Uh, But my ancestor was captured not far from where we spoke, and uh, he died in Andersonville Prison, the famous Andersonville Prison in Georgia. And I hope this year to go visit his grave uh, 155 years after his passing. Uh, but Travis was uh, a great person to have on. Uh, you know, we, there wasn't much leading needed. It was like, okay, let's talk about the next year or let's talk about the next campaign. And uh, we just went through it. Uh, Travis, you know, popped a beer and we went to work. Uh, that's the way I like it. You know, I had my ginger ale uh, and uh, we, we had some fun. We relaxed. Uh, we just sat down and we just talked about this unit and how it came out naturally. And like I say, I don't like to script this episode or any other episode. So that was very important to me. But uh, again, I want to thank Travis for for being on and for hopefully enjoying himself. And I hope he enjoys the finished product here. Uh, I think it turned out very well. And uh, I hope that you will enjoy it as well. So ladies and gentlemen, without further ado, here is my friend, Travis Shaw, from the Mosby Heritage Area Association Public Programs Coordinator, and he and I sat down and spoke about the 1st Maryland Potomac Home Brigade. Enjoy. Hey, everybody. I'm uh, sitting down with my good friend Travis Shaw, and we are going to talk about all kinds of history, I think, this evening. Uh, Travis, thanks for being on, buddy. Oh, yeah, absolutely. It's, uh, it's a pleasure to be here. Yeah, you might remember, some of you might remember Travis from uh, way back in, I think, in August. We, mm. were, we were in Leesburg doing a, a Facebook live stream, uh, and that was when I was in the infancy of doing live streams and trying to figure everything out, and Travis came along and, and graciously gave us some time to, to figure that out and it got out of hand for a while we were really rolling oh yeah that was, <laughs> <laughs> what do you expect when we're in a brewery i mean come that's on. true we started in a daylight and it was dark when we finished yeah. up but uh travis is a good friend of mine and uh you want to tell everyone what you uh, who you work for travis and what you do there sure um so i am the public 
Programs Coordinator for the Mosby Heritage Area Association. Um, it's a five-county area in Northern Virginia, so Loudoun, Fauquier, Warren, Clark, and Prince William counties. Um, and basically, we like to tell people we're a 1,600-mile museum. You know, we're not a museum with walls. We're not a museum with artifacts, per se. Um, the landscape itself is our museum. Um, we've got some of the best-preserved landscape in the Mid-Atlantic region. Uh, tremendous amount of history there. Of course, you've got Civil War armies crisscrossing that area. Um, you have Revolutionary War troop movements. You've got Native American history, civil rights history, uh, really thousands of years of history. And we feel that the best way to understand that history, to learn about that history, is to actually go out and experience it. You know, you're not just reading it, you're experiencing it with all of your senses. Uh, so what we do, we do education, we go into schools. Our director of education talks to about 5,000 students every year throughout wow. the heritage area. Um, yeah, actually, this year we're coming up on, I think, our 12th or 13th year of doing education programs and a grand total of over 50,000 students. Wow, um, that's over amazing. That yeah, it's, it's really that's amazing. Awesome. Uh, and the idea is, you know, our, our motto is preservation through education. If we reach these kids when they're young, if we instill in them, you know, how important historic preservation is, that when they grow up, they become, you know, voters, mm -hmm. they become active in their communities that they're going to keep that in mind and that they're going to you know, join us in preserving that area. Mm -hmm. You know, I don't need to tell you, Northern Virginia is one of the fastest growing areas in the entire country. Yeah, um, absolutely. Rapid, rapid urbanization. Right. So, you know, we're kind of, we're at the front lines of that. We're advocating for historic preservation. We're working with landowners to put their land under conservation easements. Uh, and as I said, we're also trying to bring up the next generation of preservationists before it's too late. Yeah, that's that's fantastic. And I didn't realize you were that large of an open air museum, basically. Yeah, it's it's a tremendous uh, area, and that's one of the real benefits of it. You know, although our our name is the Mosby Heritage Area, we're not just limited to Civil War history. Mm -hmm. um, as I said, we've got thousands of years of history to work with, and we're not just limited to one particular site or one particular story. You know, one day. We might be talking about, um, you know, a founding father. The next day, we're talking Native American history. The next mm -hmm. day, we're talking about, you know, the civil rights movement. Mm -hmm. It's really uh, a, a tremendous amount of variety. That's what right. makes the job interesting. Right. That's why I wanted to be the tattooed historian, not like the tattooed Civil War historian. Right. You know, <laughs> I wanted to. I wanted to have the ability to go anywhere. Yeah. It, you know. Yeah. I mean, I've worked at historic house museums in the past, and you know, that's that's great. It's a lot of fun. But when you're stuck with one narrative or one mm -hmm. site to interpret. Um, you know, it's refreshing to kind of break out of that and just get on the roads, get your boots on the ground and, you know, explore, explore your community. Yeah. Yeah. And to be able to tell so many stories from one place, get so much content out of one place is, you know, fantastic. Mm -hmm. And I've seen that, uh, through your, uh, organization and through the posts online and such that you're hitting that home where it's like, Hey, you know, there's more to this than just civil war history going on mm -hmm. in the Mosby heritage area. Yeah, I mean, that's been an uphill 
struggle, I guess you could say. Um, the organization was formed back in 1995, and it was formed in a direct response to Disney trying to build a amusement park near the Manassas Battlefield. I don't know if wow. you remember that. I, I kind of do, but I was I was just starting out reenacting, so I think I might have heard of it there. Yeah, all these preservationists kind of came out of the woodwork and, and you know were up in arms over this plan to build this amusement park. And so our organization was formed, and... You know, at the time, the big outcry was from the Civil War historians, the Civil War preservationists. And so it started out as a very Civil War-centric organization. But since then, we've really moved to encompass the entirety of the history. Um, you know, this year, uh, 2019, we've decided it's going to be the year of John Marshall, mm-hmm. one of the more famous people to come out of our heritage area, born and raised in Fauquier County. And so we're going to have a number of programs throughout the year that celebrate his life, his impact on the judicial branch, his impact on the American government. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, Last year, you know, for the centennial of World War I, we had some World War I events. Um, You were gracious enough to come out to one of them. That was a lot of fun. Thank you for having me. Oh, absolutely. So, you know, just trying to mix it up and show people that there is more than just the Civil War, which is is hard sometimes in Northern Virginia. You know, it it overshadows everything else. Right. Well, there's an army named after it. (laughs) (laughs) You know, uh, that's the thing. And and at the time that your organization started out, it was at the height of those 130th anniversaries. And that was huge back in the day. And it's after the Ken Burns series. And it's after the movie Gettysburg. And we were on a civil war high back then. Yeah, the best way to rally people to the cause was to, you know, especially being so close to Manassas Battlefield, it was mm-hmm. the Civil War. Right. You know, yeah. So. Yeah, it was it was the right time for something like that. Uh where can people go online to get to the website? Oh, um, so we are we have a website, www.mosbyheritageareaorg Um, That's all one word. Or you can find us on Facebook, Mosby Heritage Area. Um, Just search for it. You'll find us. You'll find a list of all of our various events, um, some of the research that we do, um, a lot of nice pictures of rural northern Virginia out there. Yeah, I noticed those. (laughs) Yeah, we, like I said, that's that's the beauty of working for a place like this. You know, um, Loudoun County, Virginia, one of the fastest growing counties in the country, still has over 300 miles of unpaved roads. Wow. So we get out there and, you know, you're standing in a road and you're standing a road that hasn't changed since, you know, Jeb Stewart rode down it in 1863 Mm -hmm. or since, you know, British POWs marched through in 1781 and really get a sense for the history. You know, the Mm -hmm. landscape hasn't changed. Um, It's it's like a time machine. Yeah. 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 It's it's an awesome area of the country. I, I remember coming down as a kid, uh, dragging my grandparents down here because I couldn't drive at the time. And we would come down to Fredericksburg and we'd always go through Northern Virginia and uh, out in those counties and just be like, wow, this is really open terrain and nice terrain. And it just looks like you just stepped into the 19th century at many places, yep. you know. And uh, speaking about not wanting to focus on the Civil War. I think we're actually going to focus on the Civil War this evening. <laughs> right. Uh, <laughs> yeah. As a non-Civil War historian, I seem to do a lot of Civil War history. Yeah, so. yeah. Uh, <laughs> we, we tend to go back, and I, I'm going back to my roots now uh, with this. But uh, I found out that Travis was a, a, a fan and a admirer and a researcher on the 1st Maryland Potomac Home Brigade, and I just so happened to have an ancestor in the 1st Maryland Potomac Home Brigade, 
and uh, he was captured and, and died in Andersonville Prison in 1864. And uh, so I have a connection to the same unit, and uh, Travis and I uh, geek out on that quite <laughs> often. And I figured, well, this is our first podcast together, so we probably should talk about the 1st Maryland Potomac Home Brigade. Uh, how's that sound? Sure, that, that sounds, sounds great. Right. That yeah. sounds right. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> we, we get on this subject, and then we start rolling, so we figured, what the heck. Right. Let's, let's try it out. Uh, but we should we should think about you know the beginning of it because a lot of people think of Maryland as you know not only a border state but uber Confederate mm-hmm. you know because that's who has gotten in the in the primary source materials that we sometimes find where it's the Maryland Confederates and all that we tend to forget there were so many Unionists in Maryland we're truly making it a divided state. Right. Um, and that's actually one of the things that drew me to this topic to begin with. Um, so much of the, the research out there, the secondary research, um, has been conducted with an eye towards identifying and studying Confederate Marylanders, but very, very little has gone towards federal troops from Maryland, um, despite the fact that they outnumbered Confederate troops from Maryland by, you know, maybe a two to one mm-hmm. or excuse three to one margin, you know, I mean, it's, mm-hmm. it's a tremendous difference. Mm-hmm. Um, but there's so little out there. Um, now, I guess I, I should go back a little bit about how I, I really got started yeah. on this topic. Uh, I'm a native of Maryland. I'm, I'm from the Frederick area, um, town you're, I'm sure very familiar oh, with. Yeah. Oh yeah. Um, and Frederick during the civil war and, and later was kind of identified as a hotbed of unionists sentiment. Um, it's one of the reasons why the legislature meets there in 1861 to discuss secession. Mm. Um, and the Frederick area, the Western Maryland area, um, they are inextricably linked with the history of the Potomac Home Brigade. I mean, the, the Home Brigade is the history of Western Maryland in the Civil War in a lot of respects. Um, these are men from Frederick County, from Washington County, Allegheny County, um, by and large, and their wartime experience was something that I found very interesting because, again, you know, talking local history, these were names people I grew up with shared these names. I saw their names on gravestones in local cemeteries or local roads were named after them. I saw the houses that these men lived in, grew up in. Mm. So for me, again, it was a, a type of history that I could experience. Right um, Now... That being said, the Potomac Home Brigade isn't necessarily the the coolest or, or sexiest <laughs> or most exciting unit to study in terms of the Civil War. You know, we're not talking about like the Stonewall Brigade, the Iron right. Brigade, the guys that really saw the the heavy fighting right. of the war. Right. Um, their wartime experience was was very different. Mm. Um, but again, that can be fascinating in and of itself. You know, not everybody's great 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 grandfather was at Pickett's Charge. Not everybody's great-great-grandfather was, you know, at Maurice Heights. Mm-hmm. There were guys that guarded the railroads. Mm-hmm. There were guys that moved supplies, you know, and they were just mm-hmm. as vital to the war effort. Yeah, yeah, and and that's the thing where a lot of people get lost in the weeds with that. And they, uh, I, I saw it years ago with some World War II vets where uh, they would be in logistics back in World War II or whatever, and people would gravitate towards the combat veterans and kind of forget that there are people who did other things that were just as honorable and noble and all that. And then when I started studying the first Maryland Potomac home brigade, I started to see that there wasn't a lot out there on them. Right. They're kind of pushed <laughs> to the side and I'm like, well, my ancestor had to have done something, <laughs> you know, something 
uh, noble in this cause for the Union. Sure. Um, but I remember he was from like Cumberland, Hancock area mm-hmm. of Maryland. Oh yeah, that's that's Home Brigade country. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. That's strong Unionist country oh. in there. And weren't there a few guys from? What's modern day West Virginia thrown in there? Um, a lot of them. So, uh, a lot of my research has revolved around identifying these soldiers who served, where they came from, the communities they come from. Um, the Home Brigade is, you know, across the the entire brigade is overwhelmingly, or I should say, the majority are are, are Marylanders, particularly Western Maryland, um, also Baltimore. Um, which is a whole nother yeah, that's, <laughs> topic I was we can go say, into. Wow, okay. Um, but there's large numbers of Pennsylvanians, guys from Adams County, Franklin County, along the Mason-Dixon line. Um, and there are a large number of Virginians, about 10% of the men who fought in the Home Brigade. Um, I've un- identified close to 600 individuals who are from either Virginia or what is modern-day West Virginia. Wow. Um, particularly the upper Potomac counties. So we're talking Loudoun County, mm-hmm. Jefferson County, Berkeley County, Morgan County, Hampshire County, kind of the eastern panhandle of what is now West Virginia. Okay. Yeah. Wow. Um, How many men were in this brigade when it was formed? Oh, geez. Um, (laughs) I'm putting him on the spot. (laughs) Well, if we're going to go, we might as well go all the way back to the beginning. Yeah. Um, So I'll I'll talk a bit about the brigade for people who aren't familiar with it or or who don't necessarily study that part of the Civil War. So uh, the Potomac Home Brigade is the brainchild of a man named Francis Thomas. Uh, Thomas was the governor of Maryland back in the 1840s, very distinguished legal career. Uh, unfortunately, he <laughs> basically got embroiled in, in a terrific scandal. He marries the governor of Virginia's daughter, who's half his age. Within months, they're divorced. Um, things are very bad. He writes a very, very public expose that accuses her of everything from, like, sleeping with her cousin to having an abortion all this really wow scandalous stuff for the 1840s (laughs) um really salacious stuff and that basically kills his entire political career he's an outcast um he's not really involved much in politics until 1861 um the secession crisis and he basically comes roaring out of Western Maryland as like the voice of unionism, unconditional mm-hmm. unionism. Um, they, there's a, a great newspaper article I found that refers to him as the, the clarion call of Western Maryland. Um, so he really carries the torch and he's speaking in towns from Cumberland to Frederick and every little town in between, um, including some towns in Virginia across the Potomac advocating for the union cause Mm -hmm. and he gets this reputation as an unconditional unionist and so when virginia secedes and maryland is kind of sitting on the fence the maryland legislature um in in april votes against secession but the idea is still out there that they might bring it back to a vote again he uh, writes to Secretary of War Cameron and says, you know, we need a force to protect Western Maryland. You know, Virginians have been crossing over. They're confiscating property. They're confiscating arms. They're harassing loyal Marylanders. We need a force to protect them. And so he decides um, we need four regiments of infantry that are going to patrol the Potomac from the Monocacy to the western border of Maryland. And that's the birth of the Home Brigade. Mm. Um, he only gets three regiments of infantry raised uh, by the fall, winter of 1861. 
as well as several companies of cavalry, which will go on to be known as Cole's Maryland Cavalry. Um, So their job is to guard the Potomac River, guard against any Confederate attempts to cross the river, and specifically to guard the B&O Railroad and the C&O Canal, two absolutely vital transportation networks. So this is why we don't hear about them in like major engagements yet, because <laughs> right. their their job is to stay there, and, right, and to make sure the Confederates don't try to mm-hmm. do something to be an O Railroad or come across Potomac. Right. I mean, if you you read the uh, the newspaper accounts or the recruiting notices for the regiment, the idea is that they will not be asked to serve outside of Maryland or outside mm-hmm. of the Potomac River Valley. Um, they're really in it to protect their homes, protect their families, protect their livelihoods. Mm-hmm. That being said, they do occasionally venture beyond that, and we'll probably get into that a little later on. Yeah. But um, fascinating organization because they have such a a specific role in the war. Mm-hmm. Um, you mm-hmm. Know. Mm-hmm. When when do they really start to meet you know a threat? When do they when do they start to meet action <laughs> so the uh the regiments of the the home brigade are raised throughout the late summer early fall of 1861 okay. and almost immediately they're going to see action now they're not going to see action in the same sense that like the army of the potomac right. is seeing action right. in virginia or down on the peninsula or wherever yeah. um their war is very much going to be a guerrilla war mm. um they're going to be constantly engaged with guys like Mosby's Rangers, um, Elijah White's Comanches, another Confederate mm-hmm. guerrilla group. Um, the earliest combat that any of the Home Brigade regiments get into is the 2nd Regiment of the Home Brigade uh, out of Cumberland. They're involved in the Romney campaign in 1861. Okay. Um, they get engaged in some small skirmishes out in West Virginia. They lose a few men, and that's really the, uh, the baptism of fire for them. How are they? How is are these actions seen by, you know, Marylanders? You know, what I mean by that is these guys are here protecting Maryland and such. Do they ever meet, uh, like resistance from locals where they're like, hey, you know, we we don't really want to talk to you guys. We don't want to deal with you guys. You know, people who are like maybe secessionist ties. Uh, you know, the Eastern Marylanders, or you know, or there are interspersings of, you know, secessionists in. Hagerstown, oh, Frederick. Absolutely. You know, do they ever like come across that during this early period? They or? do. They absolutely do. Um, for a lot of the the early part of the war, late 1861, early 1862, they're going to serve um, essentially as provost guard. Okay. In Western Maryland, and part of that duty is suppressing secessionist Marylanders. Mm. Um, there's probably one of the more entertaining anecdotes of this is uh, in Frederick a local tavern owner starts shouting, you know, hurrah for Jeff Davis, long live the Confederacy, that kind of stuff. And so several men from the home brigade overhear this, enter his bar and absolutely wreck the place. They smash (laughs) all the windows. They beat, they beat the hell out of him. Wow. Um, But I mean, that's, (laughs) that's just one small incident. Um, Although, like I said, for the most part, these guys are coming from areas that while not a hundred percent, unionist and their mm. their loyalties there's still the the overwhelming sentiment um so much of the press that they get from local papers from local citizens is pretty positive okay um with a few exceptions there's a few kind of democratic leaning newspapers kind of peace democrat newspapers that 
call them ruffians, accuse them of harassing citizens and things like mm. that. Um, but for the most part, especially the people who live on the river itself, mm. um, tend to be th- pretty thankful for their service. Um, you know, these are people who work on the railroad, who work on the canal. Mm. Um, if it weren't for the home brigade, they might be out of that work. So. Yeah, it sounds like uh, a brigade of men, it's like the old militia system where you defend home and hearth and your local populace and your local area and that's where you are you stay in that area and do that right yeah unlike so many men during the civil war we're not talking about guys that are sent to fight and die thousands of miles from home or hundreds of miles from home uh for the most part these guys are operating in and around their own communities Mm -hmm. Uh, now that does change as the war goes on one one issue that comes up is in early 1862 what happens nathaniel banks and his army march down into the Shenandoah Valley, invade Virginia. And the Home Brigade is, or the 1st Regiment of the Home Brigade is part of his command. Hmm. And it actually goes to a vote in the regiment, you know, will they go with Banks, even though it violates kind of the, the spirit of their their regiment, or will they stay behind in Maryland? And the men actually vote almost unanimously to go. Really? Um, So they do serve in the Shenandoah Valley, and that's going to be true of all three home brigade regiments, infantry regiments, as well as the cavalry. They will all serve outside of Maryland when duty calls. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. What what about—now, I had an ancestor in Pennsylvania, September of 62, you know, in that fall when Lee's coming north uh, to try to invade the north for the first time. He's in Pennsylvania at the time, and they say, well, we need militia to form— to that what's 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 the potomac home brigade doing then uh when they know that lee's coming you know what's what are these guys doing then because they realize there's an overwhelming force coming their direction that's (laughs) a fantastic question yeah so this is the first time that they're really put to the test um the home brigade at this point the infantry is scattered all across maryland you know along the potomac uh the first Federal infantry that the Confederates will encounter on the north bank of the Potomac will be some companies of the Potomac Home Brigade, um, some of the first Potomac Home Brigade infantry mm-hmm. at the uh, Monocacy Aqueduct area. Okay. Um, guarding the river crossings near there. Um, you so know, they're doing their job. They're doing their job. We're talking about maybe 30 guys in total. Um, obviously, yeah. when they see the Army of Northern Virginia coming, they fire a few shots and skedaddle. Right. Um, and they... Uh, they will head to Frederick, and they'll meet up with another company that's there under the command of a Captain Faithful. And I love oh, that name because it is so appropriate. Yeah, um, Captain Faithful is the provost guard in Frederick in September of 1862. Wow. Uh, he knows the Army of Northern Virginia is on its way, mm-hmm. and he's ordered to basically destroy everything that will be of use to the Confederate Army. Uh, Faithful, though, is a, a very resilient officer, a very resourceful officer, Instead of destroying everything, he basically, um, what's the word I want to say? He he commandeers everything that he can load cargo on, whether it's a wagon, a rail car, whatever, horse, donkey, doesn't matter. If it mm-hmm. moves, it's going to carry federal equipment out of the city of Frederick. So mm-hmm. he's able to evacuate over 2,000 wounded men out of the hospitals of Frederick to keep them from falling into Confederate hands. Wow. Um, he occupies... Uh, he evacuates thousands of horses, mules up to Pennsylvania to keep them out of Lee's hands. 
hundreds of wagons, rail cars, rolling stock, everything. Um, all that's left in the town by the time he's finished are some hospital beds, bedding, um, some heavy equipment that he can't quite get rid of. That's mm-hmm. burned in the streets, and then he marches off with his command just hours before Lee's army enters the city. Wow. That's um, amazing. It's a pretty cool story. Yeah. Uh, unfortunately for Faithful and his men, they march to Harper's Ferry, where the rest <laughs> of the regiment is supposed to gather. So the 1st and 3rd Potomac Home Brigade regiments are there in Harper's Ferry as part of the garrison. Mm. And uh, as any student of the Civil War knows, Stonewall Jackson is going to surround Harper's Ferry and force the surrender of the garrison there. So both of those regiments will be captured. Mm-hmm. Um, now, interestingly... The other Home Brigade regiment or organization that's there in Harpers Ferry is the cavalry, the four cavalry companies known as Cole's Cavalry or Cole's Maryland Battalion. They are also in Harpers Ferry when Stonewall Jackson surrounds the town, and rather than surrender, they lead the cavalry breakout from Harpers Ferry. Hmm. Um, Again, these are guys from Western Maryland, guys from Hmm. Washington County, Frederick County. They know every back road and cattle trail through the mountains. They're going to ride at the head of the federal column and get the federal cavalry out of Harper's Ferry in wow. one piece, which is a really cool story. Um, yeah. We could do a whole show on that. It's a yeah. fascinating story. But. We'll have to do a live stream from down <laughs> yeah, there. Yeah. We'll, on that, you know, go on someone else's paths. We'll drive the route. Yeah. Because, um, <laughs> yeah. yeah. Um, basically, they're able to slip through Confederate lines in the middle of the night and not only get themselves to you know, out, out of the Confederate lines and, and to freedom, but they also capture much of Longstreet's ammunition train on the way. Mm, so wow. it's really um, the one bright moment in the Harper's Ferry campaign for the Federal Army is is that cavalry breakout. Where did they take all that stuff from Frederick? I mean, not not the wounded. Obviously, they go to hospitals or whatever, but all that all that stuff they had to get out of there. I mean, that had to go to Pennsylvania or so by way of Baltimore. Yeah. From what I've been able to gather, um, the livestock, you know, the cattle, Mm. the horses, the draft animals and all that, that all for the most part goes to Pennsylvania. Mm. Um, much of the medical equipment, um, other stores, military stores is taken by rail to Baltimore. Okay. So these guys, because of what happens at Harper's Ferry, these guys aren't involved in the Antietam campaign because they're doing other things or they're being captured. One of the other, you know, AP Hills guys are capturing them in Harper's Ferry. Right. Uh, Um, So they're not at, like, if you go visit Antietam, you're not going to see anything about these guys there, really. You will and you won't. Um, One of the kind of ultimate ironies of this is that almost every able-bodied man of military age in the village of Sharpsburg mm-hmm. was in the 1st Maryland Potomac Home Brigade. Two okay. companies of the regiment uh, were made up of Sharpsburg men. Um, the uh, company, the Sharpsburg Rifles, as they were known, and then there was another company um, raised a little later on. Mm-hmm. So while this you know, titanic battle is happening just outside of their homes and on their farm fields, these men are just a few miles away in Harper's Ferry as mm-hmm. prisoners of war, which, I mean, that must have raised some interesting feelings, you know, oh, yeah. hearing the gunfire, hearing the cannons, not knowing what's going on in your hometown. Yeah. Um, now, I, I say that you will see monuments to them, not necessarily on the battlefield, but in the cemetery itself, mm-hmm. um, the National Cemetery there, a number of men from the Home Brigade are buried there, and also in the uh, the civilian cemetery across the street. Okay. 
Okay. Um, in fact, it was um, men connected to the Potomac Home Brigade who got the National Cemetery built in the first place. Oh, really? Um, the the Fiery family uh, of Washington County, Maryland, were, were very outspoken Unionists. Um, one of them commanded a company of cavalry in the Home Brigade. Uh, Louis Fiery, another member of the family, was offered a commission in the Home Brigade Infantry, turned it down, instead worked as a politician, hmm. and he's the one that introduces the legislation to have the cemetery built. Um, the first caretaker there was a veteran of the Home Brigade. Mm-hmm. So again, if, if you're looking at uh, Sharpsburg, the hometown unit, Right is the first Potomac Home Brigade Infantry. Okay, and these guys are later, basically, because AP Hill's got to get out of there. He's got to go to Antietam. These guys are furloughed. Yes. And then what happens to them after they're furloughed? Uh, they're paroled or and they're sent. Uh, they're sent to camp parole outside of Annapolis, Maryland. Um, camp parole is this massive, sprawling um, military encampment. I don't necessarily want to call it a, a POW camp because it is in Maryland. It's under federal control but it is for federal soldiers it's for federal soldiers who have been paroled but their prisoner exchanges have not gone through yet okay Um, so they're going to spend a few months sitting outside of annapolis waiting for the official exchange to happen Um, by early 1863 they're all back in the ranks okay yeah because i know that my ancestor was uh involved in the 1863 campaign so he must have been captured at harper's ferry gone parole and then he's back mm-hmm. spring of 63 yep you know getting ready to go into action do they see any uh, action in virginia at all at that time or are they still back at the potomac they're still hanging out around that area um for the most part through early 63 um they're going to be up and down the potomac um the and really scattered across the Potomac. I mean, the 1st Potomac Home Brigade Infantry spend some time down in St. Mary's County, all the way in the very southern part of Maryland. Um, the 2nd Potomac Home Brigade Infantry, which is not involved at all in the Antietam campaign, they're out west near Cumberland. Um, they're one of my favorite stories because at this time they have a company that is running ironclad rail cars out of Cumberland. Wow. Yeah, yeah. That's cool. yeah. Um, they call them land monitors, which I absolutely love the mental image of that. That is um, very cool. They I'm take, picturing like a Civil War tank. Yes, yeah, more or less. They take yeah. um, flatbed rail cars, they armor them with old iron rails, they put some artillery pieces on them, wow. and they run this up and down the, uh, the B&O Railroad, basically between Cumberland and Harpers Ferry. Hmm. Um, you know, they'll, they'll have B&O Railroad telegraph operators wire in say oh confederates are attacking the bridge on the potomac or they're attacking the bridge here mm-hmm. and this thing will go steaming down the line to chase off those confederate raiders that's cool um it's a really wild story um i've been doing a, a lot of research into that lately actually the the idea of these land monitors yeah that's a really great idea though <laughs> you yeah. know you know if you use the um, the the railroad along the river to your advantage mm-hmm. what better way to do it than to have ironclad Real cars. Right. That's and, amazing. Um, you know, it kind of speaks to how inextricably linked the Home Brigade is with the railroad itself. You know, they're operating alongside civilian railroad employees. You know, telegraph operators are giving them intel. Um, they've got civilian engineers and railroad uh, maintenance guys on these crews making sure that these ironclad rail cars can run. Mm-hmm. Um, they've got blockhouses along the railroad that are being 
manned by home brigade troops, but they're being built and paid for by the B&O Railroad itself. Mm-hmm. So there's this incredible amount of cooperation between the civilian authorities of the railroad company and, mm-hmm. and the home brigade itself, you know, keeping that vital lifeline open. And, and by that summer of 63, Lee's coming north again. And these guys hear about it. They must have been like, oh, here we go. Right. Let's not go to Harper's <laughs> Ferry this time. Yeah. Uh, let's stay here. Yeah. <laughs> um, so this is this is where things get a little complex. So um, we'll focus on the 1st Maryland-Potomac Home Brigade Infantry. Um, you know, they're in southern Maryland. They're in St. Mary's County when word is that Lee has crossed the Potomac. And so they will be loaded on board steamships and sent immediately up to Baltimore. Uh, at this point, the Army of the Potomac is trying to pull in any troops that they can for this uh, for this invasion. And so they will arrive in Baltimore. They'll march from Baltimore to Frederick. And from Frederick, uh, they will be combined with a few other regiments of kind of rear echelon troops. The 1st Maryland Eastern Shore Infantry. Um, was it the 150th New York? Um, and they'll be put under the command of, of Henry Lockwood. Um, Lockwood is a, um, he's a Union Army general who's spent most of the war kind of in the rear echelon guarding Baltimore, guarding the Eastern Shore, putting down secessionists in Maryland. And he is ordered to take this makeshift brigade to Gettysburg, um, put it under the command of the 12th Army Corps. So the, the 1st Potomac Home Brigade Infantry arrives at Gettysburg early on the morning of July 2nd. Um, that evening, they're sent into battle, um, repulsing what's left of kind of the Confederate assault on the, the second day on Cemetery Ridge. Um, they they recapture a Massachusetts battery there. They don't really see heavy action on the second. Hmm. It's on the third that they really get their baptism of fire, and they get their first taste of what a real large-scale Civil War battle is. Hmm. Um, just before dawn, they're encamped around the Baltimore Pike and they're sent to recapture the lower slopes of Culp's Hill. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, so in, uh, you know, maybe 30, 45 minutes of combat that morning, they suffer over a hundred casualties. Mm. Uh, during some of that action, they're actually fighting against Marylanders in the, uh, first Maryland battalion in the Confederate army. Right. Wow. Um, so, you know, we, we always love to throw around that phrase brother mm-hmm. against brother, but in this yeah. case, you know, it, it was true. I mean, these are yeah. guys from the same state, from the same communities in some cases. Yeah. Um, so they they acquit themselves fairly well on July 3rd, so much so that even veterans of the Army of the Potomac say, you know, these guys, they fought like, you know, fought like regular troops. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, they do, as I said, suffer pretty heavily in just a short amount of time. Um, you know, it's interesting. Another fun trivia fact is when they arrive on the July 2nd, they are the largest regiment in the federal army at Gettysburg. Really? They have over 600 <laughs> wow. officers and men, you know. I mean, they are sure. you know, there are That's plenty huge. of brigades in the Amer- or in the uh, Army of the Potomac that probably would would <laughs> might be less than that. Yeah, they're um, probably wondering what brigade it was. Right. It was actually um, a regiment, <laughs> you know, because they haven't necessarily been in these large battles, but they've been involved in this kind of low-level guerrilla conflict. Right. Right. So. Yeah, so they're losing like 1 in 6. Yeah, in that short yeah. amount of time, that's incredible. Yeah. yeah, that's incredible. What do they do the rest of the year then? Because that year kind of fizzles out. Lee, 
Do they pursue Lee to the to the river? They do. Um, the the first Maryland Potomac Home Brigade is involved in the pursuit. Um, the second Potomac Home Brigade Infantry is called in from Cumberland. They're part of the pursuit. Um, the third infantry is um, they guard the the rail connections around Frederick Monocacy Junction that area. Mm-hmm. Um, and I really haven't spoken much about Cole's Cavalry, but out of all the Home Brigade organizations, they are definitely the most active. They mm-hmm. are constantly engaged, going deep into Confederate territory, raiding, gathering intelligence, capturing uh, prisoners, stragglers. During Lee's invasion of Pennsylvania, they're going to serve as couriers, scouts, guides for the uh, division and corps commanders, the mm-hmm. Army of the Potomac. Mm-hmm. Um, very, very busy. You know, it helps to have a body of men who are familiar with the, the back roads right. and the communities and everything. You know, yeah, it's uh, you know one one Maryland paper says that Cole's cavalry, the Potomac Home Brigade cavalry, is as much use to the Army of the Potomac as john mosby is to the confederate army hmm it sounds like they were just as mobile yes yeah absolutely because that's one thing mosby's known for is being mobile and and just disappearing you know going away for a while and then he pops up somewhere else sounds like these guys are a lot like that right and and the home brigade cavalry is going to spar with mosby and with lige white and some of these other confederate guerrilla groups constantly throughout the war yeah so yeah and uh in 64 is when my ancestor was captured mm-hmm. not far from where we are now no not, not too too awfully far yeah. are they going back to the like their 62 way where they're they're coming over the the border to you know to raid or to to support something and then going back to maryland or are they sticking it out here in northern virginia at that time so the the thing about the bno railroad is that harper's ferry it crosses the Potomac River, leaves Maryland, and runs for, for pretty great length across what we now today know as the, the eastern panhandle of West Virginia. Mm-hmm. So in order to guard that railroad, they have to come into Virginia, um, you know, guard places like Martinsburg, um, mm-hmm. Keatesville, these other, or not Keatesville, what's the, Kearneysville, um, all these different little towns along the, uh, the B&O Railroad. And so that's how your ancestor ended up over here at a little place mm. called Duffield Station just outside of Charlestown, West Virginia. Okay. Um, and it was in a, a Confederate raid on Duffield Station that he got captured, right? Yeah. 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 He's captured uh, 64. Yeah. So, yeah, it's Duffield Station. Mm-hmm. Um, I guess they, they were worried about the railroads and, you know, all that, like you say, and they were down this far and. Uh, caught off guard and he was captured he'd survived gettysburg without a wound uh and uh survived everything without a wound and then he's captured uh i don't have any information on his size or you know weight or anything uh but i know that when he was taken prisoner he was sent uh south and then was sent to andersonville uh so you've got some marylanders in there uh you know who are trying to fight to survive and in that god awful, you know, prisoner of war camp. Uh, so I guess some other of his comrades were there with him, you know, or in that area with him because he wasn't the only one captured there. There's a large no, capture there's, there. There's I don't know, probably about a dozen or maybe up to twenty. The numbers vary depending on whether you look at right United States sources or Confederate sources, but uh, um, yeah, a number of men they were guarding a rail depot and. You know, yeah. Mosby's Rangers ride up, take most of them prisoner. Yeah, caught them off guard. Didn't know what hit them, really. 
Right. Um, yeah, a lot of the, the home brigade guys, particularly in, in Cole's Cavalry, end up in Andersonville. Mm. Um, New Year's Day, 1864, there's a, a, a skirmish we'll say down near five points virginia um just outside of Rectortown, near mm-hmm. where i work and about 30 of cole's men are captured there by mosby's rangers and out of the let's say i just counted the other day 34 men who are captured 27 of them die in in southern prisons wow um and again we're talking about marylanders we're talking about virginians mm-hmm. we're talking about pennsylvanians mm-hmm. um so yeah what would become west virginia the west, west virginians, virginians yep. yeah they're all mixed in together yeah um but yeah it was uh when when sherman's army came down through and they they evacuated the camp they left the the terminally sick those that couldn't walk out they, they took them and put them somewhere separate and left them there basically to die and uh, my ancestor was uh, so bad off with scurvy that they just left him behind. Uh, and they, I think the record said he died like within a day or two of them leaving him wow. with everyone else. So it's kind of a sad way of a, an ending to, you know, this guy's life that, that that happens. But in 64, at the time where he's prisoner of war, is First Maryland Potomac Home Brigade still around, or have they incorporated into other units? Because I heard that it, like a 14th Maryland started, or 13th, right? And they kind of like were taken in. Yeah. So um, what happens is these guys sign up in 1861, three year enlistments, mm-hmm. like much of the the rest of the United States Army at the time, volunteer army. And as those enlistments expire in the fall of 1864, you know these guys are given a choice: you can reenlist where you can go home, you know, your service is done. And, and many of them re-enlist and a number, several hundred new recruits are raised in the winter of 1864, early 65. And so they combine those recruits with the veterans of the first Maryland Potomac home brigade into mm-hmm. what is known as the 13th Maryland. 13. And that's how the organization will finish the wars as the 13th Maryland. And will they stay basically the same sector? Yeah, the rest I mean, of the war they're here to defend the B and O. Right. And um, they spend a lot of time in the vicinity of Harper's Ferry, Sandy Hook, over on the Maryland side of the river, um, out towards Martinsburg, that area. Mm-hmm. Um, the The last major engagement that the First Maryland Potomac Home Brigade is involved in is the Battle of Monocacy in July mm-hmm. eighteen sixty four. The the Third Maryland home brigade infantry is also there okay and just like the first it's really their last major engagement you know they go back right. to fighting this guerrilla war you know losing you know maybe handful of guys here and there mm-hmm. um you know like your ancestor guys that are right. caught in cavalry raids and so forth right. but, there's so. men to disease more than anything oh yes. yeah yep. yeah um the, the the most interesting part of this story for me as we start to think about wrapping up is the fact that it how these guys actually fit in historical memory because we don't they they're like i said they're often pushed to the side and there's this other narrative you know because they're not involved in things heavily with the army of the potomac uh they're they're kind of a home well, they're a home brigade but i mean they're home defense basically you know they're in that area and it's kind of interesting to think of them from a historical memory mindset yeah i mean other than the Battle of Gettysburg and, and the 1st Infantry there, they really are at the periphery of every major campaign. You know, you mm-hmm. look at Antietam. They're there, they're active, but they're not at the Battle of Antietam. You look at um, 
Jubal Early's 1864 invasion of Maryland. Like, they're there at Monocacy, but they're not part of the heavy fighting mm-hmm. that the veterans of the Sixth Corps are part of at that battle. Mm-hmm. Um, their war is is very different from a lot of the accounts that we read. But in a way, I think it's probably more typical for a lot of guys. Right. You know, we doesn't matter what era, you know, it could be the Revolutionary War, Civil War, World War II, whatever. We always read about, you know, how warfare is a lot of sitting around boredom <laughs> yeah. punctuated by moments of sheer terror. And, and I think that was certainly the case for these guys. Um, you know, they, are, they aren't always in the thick of the fighting, but... Mm-hmm they're they're always engaged um Mm -hmm. kind of that that like i said low level war what we today in in the 21st century would call kind of counterinsurgency war you Mm -hmm. know they're they're not fighting lines of enemy infantry across an open field they're fighting confederate guerrillas who strike in the middle of the night they're fighting guys that are burning railroad bridges or wrecking Mm -hmm. the canal or or what have you right um so it's uh, you know a lot of sitting around waiting and then not knowing what to expect them. Right. You know? Yeah. And it's kind of interesting to think maybe these guys technically were actually shot at more, you know, (laughs) Uh, any small little raids and small little skirmishes. And we don't think about it because we only picture the guys who were in the major campaigns. You know, maybe these guys are involved in a lot of just, you know, five, 10 minute little firefights more often Mm-hmm. than we have with like the 20th Maine or the 8th Ohio or or whomever else. But but plus at the same time these guys are on Culp's Hill uh on the third day and a lot of us from the area know that Culp's Hill is often overlooked. Mm-hmm. And so they're kind of, you know, even there they're <laughs> yeah, on the even in their of the battlefield. Yeah, yeah, they, yeah. They get overlooked um but uh no, I mean, it's like like I said at the beginning of this, it's a service that's absolutely vital to the success of the, the Union war effort, um, but it's not something we, we tend to romanticize or glorify. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that's, you know, that's something that drew me to the subject. The local connection drew me to the subject. And uh, also, you know, I, I touched upon this earlier, kind of setting the record straight. You know, there's so much about Confederate Marylanders, and yet the the Marylanders who who fought in the U.S. Army are just completely ignored by a lot of the historiography. Right. Um, the Home Brigade is a small part of that. Obviously, you have other Maryland regiments that see heavy fighting um, mm-hmm. at Antietam, at Gettysburg during the Overland Campaign, um, and they are are certainly worthy of study as well. Um, right. So yeah, maybe maybe when I'm done with the home brigade, I'll I'll get to that. But, uh, (laughs) um, you know, there's there's just something really special to me about telling the stories of guys who grew up in the same area as I did, guys who Mm -hmm. who are are in some ways familiar to me. Mm -hmm. And it's that overarching theme that I see so often that if you have that connection to the past, you'll want to know more about it. And uh, if you're into local history and you're from you know, Frederick, Hagerstown, Maryland, west of there, even east of there, and you're into local history, these are the guys you want to look at, you know, and for the most part. Right, absolutely. Yeah. Don't let those guys uh, go unnoticed, you know. <laughs> and, uh, but, no, it's a, it's a very interesting unit to be, be talking about. Uh, we hear so much about Mosby, we forget who he was actually fighting against. <laughs> you know, we, we were like, well, who were the Federals he was fighting against? He had to be fighting against someone. And these were some of the guys who were 
holding him off yeah, in many and, cases. And and that makes it that much more fascinating. I mean, as I've, I've reiterated so many times, a lot of these guys were from the same areas. You know, these were mm-hmm. Virginians or Marylanders who were who were from the same communities, mm-hmm. uh, same areas, just fighting for the, for you know the other side. Mm-hmm. And so that adds a certain amount of familiarity to the combat between them. Mm-hmm. Adds a certain amount of probably ferocity, I would imagine. Right. Um, right. You know, just this past weekend, we actually led a tour through some sites in in Loudoun and Fauquier County following 10 days of combat in, in 1864 between Mosby's Rangers and Cole's Cavalry. You know, mm. they clashed multiple times in just a short period of time. And the the rivalry that was there and kind of the ferocity that was there is, is pretty interesting. Mm. Mm. certainly adds a personal dimension to the war. Right, right. And now when I meet someone who says they're descendants from Mosby's cavalry, I'll be like, well, I was on the other side, right. <laughs> you know, right. you know, good on you, but uh, nice try, yeah. <laughs> you know, but no, uh, that this is a, a very good local history story. And, uh, if you're from the region, definitely look into it. And, uh, Travis, I want to thank you for doing this, uh, for a podcast. We did the live stream, uh, and we did 18th century then mm-hmm. now we've done 19th century and the next time we gotta do 20th oh, i don't know about uh, that that's way outside <laughs> my comfort zone but we'll uh, go back to 18th that's oh, that's uh, fine we could do that we okay. can do that uh but no thank you for for being on and uh thank you all for tuning in and listening mm-hmm.